When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Welcome to a Believe Podcast. I'm your host, John Hoistenstam. This is The Guitar Life. My special guest today not only is an excellent musician and guitarist, he's also a stage director, music production, songwriter, countless attributes. This guy's amazing. got an incredible story, and I should say stories with an S, it just goes on forever. Peter Margolis, I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right. Well, let's get at it. Yeah. So from the beginning. <laughs> from the beginning. So where was your uh, where was your early inspiration from? Have you got any relatives that were musicians? Uh, um, that sort of thing. No, my my relatives are all um, not all, but mostly TV film people. Right. Um, my grandfather, one grandfather was a jeweler uh, on my dad's side, and the other grandfather was a builder. Um, both the grandfather on my mom's side was very successful, um, built a lot of homes and apartment buildings in, in, in L.A. Developers. Uh, right. Yeah. My father played upright bass in a uh, big band orchestra in the uh, army where he was located. He was a band leader slash big band, uh, a band leader, uh, upright bass player. And um, so I guess my musical interests come from my dad. You know, typical kid got piano lessons at 
four or five in the in the upright that we had and um you know like so many others i was five years old in 1964 and uh the beatles came on ed sullivan and uh you know lost interest in the piano pretty quickly although i wasn't (laughs) allowed to stop playing but you know i saw my first electric guitar and you know that was it um yeah for a lot of people beatles were a big big deal for a lot oh yeah yeah so um, I think it was a, probably a couple of years before I actually got an electric guitar. I think my sister had uh, a, a nylon string guitar that I started, you know, learning basic chords with. And then that I had that for a couple of years. And then I think um, I went to junior high school in 1970, mm-hmm. maybe 71. And... Um, I would walk up to the bus stop and sit and wait for the bus. And there was a kid who had moved into the neighborhood uh, in that year. And we sat at the bus together and he would always bring his guitar to school. And so we started talking and I told him I was, you know, I played, but it wasn't great. And um, so he had an electric guitar and I started playing his. Turns out um, he had a big career later uh, in the eighties. His name was Robbie Neville and he had a, I think three or four records and a hit song called Say La Vie. Um, but we used to ride the bus to junior high together every day. And uh, so my interest in the electric guitar came from him. Um, so that was junior high. And then I think I got a Guild Starfire might have been the first electric guitar. Mm-hmm. Replaced eventually by an SG and then I think a 74 Strat. And uh, I had that, I think, until I met you, um, which would have been 11th grade. And I remember when we met, I I was 16. Uh, We were introduced by Brian Hollister. Mm -hmm. Um, And and he took me to see you play. Uh, This was when you were, I think, doing a trio or i don't know something with jimmy haslip the first time i saw you play mm-hmm. and we met and i remember saying oh my god i gotta i gotta learn how to play like you and <laughs> i i started coming over to your apartment in santa Mon- no i w- i started by going to your mom's house in malibu right up in the hills for about a year and then uh i think by the time i was in the 12th grade you had moved into that place uh down by Santa Monica College. And I remember you had a black Les Paul and a white Les Paul. And you said, either one, you can have either one of them for $400. <laughs> and I ended up taking the black one, which was a 52 that had been painted yeah. and had a cracked headstock. Right. Um, and you kept the white one, which I, I'm guessing was an early 70s. Custom. Yeah, it was a white custom, probably like a 74, something like that, where they were pretty prominent in 74. I just remember it being heavier than the black one. So so music was part of your life, it seems, because you didn't get distracted from your education. You know, a lot of people that gravitate towards uh, wanting to play guitar and be in bands have trouble like uh, staying focused in school but you managed to get through uh you know grade school middle school 
well, you know, high school and, and actually go to college and keep yeah, keep, they, keep music going in um you know not in every case but um typically in uh conservative jewish households um careers in 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 anything other than medicine or law or something like that are frowned upon so um i was not encouraged to be a musician um they didn't necessarily say you can't do it but they said you have to you know finish high school and you have to go to college and you have to get a degree you have to have something to fall back on mm -hmm. and you know growing up where i grew up we were a sort of middle class lower middle class family um until my father in 1970 71 invented a uh product, took the patent out on it and released it, manufactured it and released it. And it became almost an overnight sensation. And we went from being sort of lower middle class to upper middle class or upper class pretty quickly. And um, so that was the example that, you know, I was supposed to follow. Can that, I ask you, you what know, that look, was? Look, yeah. Look, look at how well your dad did and look how well your brother's but, but, doing. But what was that little product that you're talking about? Um, my father was managing all of my grandfather's apartment buildings and houses and condos as my grandfather was retiring. And they were all in Hollywood and West Hollywood and crime in LA in the early seventies was, you know, starting to become rampant or, you know, and uh, apartments were getting broken into and, and there was no, at that time is security system. So, if you lived in an apartment building, there was nothing to secure the lobby and uh, other than a, a lock on the door. So um, my dad came up with this invention where you would go to an apartment building and look on the, uh, you know, registry and see, you know, somebody's name. And um, you would pick up the phone and you would punch in the code next to their name, which, you know, was either their apartment number or something. I remember so those. Or, and they <laughs> would answer the phone and you would say, hey, I'm here to, you know, whatever. And they would say, great, let me let you in. And they would press the number nine and it would send a tone through a series of relays and, and using the phone lines down to the door and the door striker would open and, and people could, you know, enter. And that was my dad's invention. I remember and those. And, you know, it took off pretty quickly. And now, uh, you know, almost every apartment condo uh, has them. And he had the patent on that for years. I think he sold it, you know, maybe in the 90s or uh, early 2000s. And, you know, or he did cool. quite well. But um, that was my, you know, back, back to the music. That was my example. I didn't have musicians that were parents. I didn't have, you know, aunts and uncle. I'm, that play right. you know, grandparents it was all um about you know you got to be successful and uh so it wasn't something that was encouraged per se um but you know to my parents credit they did go and see me perform when i was playing a lot and they did pay for lessons and they did things like that even though they weren't necessarily hoping that that's how i would end up um you know, they were still pretty good about you, it. You did that pretty much, though, full tilt. You, it wasn't as if the guitar was always a sideline so you could no, get your it, college uh, education uh, completed. 
No, I, I finished college and at UCLA, I went four years and studied film and finished in 80. And I took a job um, with a company called Wit Thomas Harris. They produce sitcoms and I was hired to be a production assistant in 1980 on a show called Soap. And I did it for a year and, you know, I tried, you know, making my way in television at the time and the hours were um, astronomical. I mean, there were 16, 18, 20 hour days, six, seven days a week. And I, you know, obviously I couldn't play or practice or do anything, but go home and sleep for four hours and go back to work. And by the end of that season, I, I thought this, I just can't, I can't do this. I, I, I miss the guitar and I want to play. And so I quit and went to work for my father, who was, had this manufacturing plant at this time that was making these machines. Mm-hmm. And um, he said, if you work for me and learn the business, I'll let you have the conference room. Um, and you can keep your equipment and, you know, you can find your band members and you can use a conference room at night to rehearse your band and, you know, have your little hobby, which is what he thought it was going to be. And, um, over the course of the next five or six years, um, it became my life and, um, rehearsals and were every night and then rehearsals and shows and tours and recording and i had a job by day uh, you know a nine to five job but nights and weekends were for music and um i did it until march of 1985 with playing in a band or several bands you remember the second Huh? You remember the second March? I can tell you it was it was March fifteenth because um, <laughs> I, I I I remember that quote beware the Ides of March which is March fifteenth and uh, my whole world fell apart. Um, I my father's company was taken over, so I went to work and um, I was locked out basically of my office and you know my dad said the shareholders took the company over and. Uh, I came home from work at like 11 in the morning and my dog was dead on the living room floor. And I called my girlfriend who broke up with me and I went to rehearsal that night. And the last thing I had left was the band and the singer came in and said, Hey guys, I'm sorry, but I found another band. And the bass player said, well, if he's leaving, I'm leaving. So by the end of the day, I was without a job, without a girlfriend, without a dog, without a band. March and then 15th. I walked out, I walked out to my car and the, my wheels and tires were stolen. So my car was sitting on the axles and I guess it was a message uh, from some that, you know, it was time to move on and uh, find a new career. Before we do move on. Yes. Uh, just uh, backstepping a little bit. So when you go to school and you study film, uh, you know, what do they train you uh, at? I mean, how is that, uh, you know, how does that fall into, um, you know, a systematic way that they can teach you what to expect when you get into, you know, into the entertainment world and you're, you're going to be doing shows and stuff. How well, can, how can they teach you about that in school? What do they, they what, can't, they can't. Yeah. Uh, that's what and, I'm, and that was the problem for me. And, uh, and the problem was twofold. Um, first of all, I grew up where my brother was, uh, by the time I was in college, a very successful f- film and television director 
and my uncle was a game show host and um i had worked sort of part-time on and off besides working for my father and summers um i would hold cue cards on a soap opera called the young and the restless and i started in i think 77 and i did it through 1980 when i went and did this pa job and so i had been on sets you know a good deal of my life and what I was learning in film school at UCLA, I didn't think was practical to what I was seeing mm-hmm. when I was working. So for me, I didn't get a lot out of it. Uh, what I did get out of it was um, I was able to shoot music um, for my projects, which is what I really wanted to do. And I, I, I think that was another way that we connected was I think I shot some stuff with you Yeah, for school. Yeah. Yeah. And there were some other bands that were not successful yet that were available for the, you know, UCLA film students. Like I, I remember um, X coming up to the um, UCLA film school one night and they performed a song or two that the students shot. And there were some other, you know, young unsigned bands at the time. Uh, that were coming up for us to shoot, you know, sort of live performance videos. Um, But I really didn't get a lot out of it because, you know, I knew a lot going in and coming from a family where, you know, there are several people that work in the business and and already having worked in there, I felt what I was being taught were things that were already sort of old technology and old ways. Did the... uh... Sorry, did the piece of paper, the qualification, the graduation, did it ever, Zero. it never helped you once in your career? I've never once been asked. Uh, <laughs> I'm, and I'm 61. And I've yeah. been in the Director's Guild since 1985. I have never once been asked if I have a college education. Right. So so now it's uh, it's the middle of 1985. You, uh, the music thing collapsed, literally. Right. Yeah. And, and you're like you're like faced with having to make some decisions, but you do have a, a, a considerable amount of experience, you know. Well, there's a couple things that happened after. 85 yeah. What, what, what brought that, it what it brought it on? You know, what made well, it happen? There are a few things that after the band that happened. Um, so right after the band, I went and I worked and it started in late 85. My brother was working for Dick Clark doing some shows and he got me a job uh, as Dick Clark's son's assist personal assistant. Um, and he was producing a show called Putting on the Hits. And so I started working at Dick Clark Productions. Um, and there was a lot of although it was a television production company, it was a lot of it was music, American Bandstand uh, was a show I worked on and the American Music Awards and a bunch of other, you know, music-based mm-hmm. stuff. So you're Dick around music, made. you're around music. Yeah, Dick, and Dick in and, and that time had a radio show and which was produced in the office. And so he had a lot of music producers. And, and so I, I felt like I was still around it, even though I wasn't playing. You're listening to a Believe podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm, and this is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. So I was there for a year 
And um, I decided at that time, I was watching what everybody did and, you know, all the different departments. And I decided I wanted to be a stage manager. I liked what that guy was doing, the guy I saw. Mm -hmm. And so there was a position open at the end of 1985. The show I was working on had had a spinoff show. And um, I basically begged the producers to, you know, sign my Directors Guild application and let me join. And I did. It was the end of 85 or early 86. I I don't remember. And um, I started working on a show called Putting on the Kids. And um, so now I was was in the Directors Guild and doing this. And the host of this show was a guy named Michael Young. And Michael Young was a singer besides being a television personality. And he sort of took a shine to me. And he said at the end of the show, he said, hey, listen, I do these USO tours. I'm the you know, primary vocalist and the host, and I've been doing them for years. We put a band together and you know, a bunch of television personalities go out and and tour the USO and play on army bases and Navy and Coast Guard and Marines. Would you be interested in putting a band together for me? And all of a sudden I was, you know, back in it. Um, so now it's 86, 87 and um, finding some of the old guys that I used to play with and saying, hey, you want to go and tour the USO and, you know, uh, fly around in helicopters and, and army planes and go all over the Pacific Northwest and Alaska. And we ended up doing that and had to learn a bunch of cover tunes, which I hadn't really done before. And um, so the four of us uh, got on a plane, flew to Alaska. We were issued uh, clothing because it was very cold where we were going. And we played uh, two shows a day a matinee and a night and an evening show on different army bases. And we'd, we would fly in a helicopter and all the gear was flown around was, it was a grind and we did it for months and that really secured at the end of that, it was grueling. Um, so after that, I decided, um, I had always written the songs in the bands and that I was in. And so I decided I wanted to be a songwriter um and score tv and and i had had a music education because when i was going to ucla i went to dick grove uh music school at the same time for four mm-hmm. years which was a that was a jazz big deal based, back then yeah it was a jazz-based college it was sort of the west coast equivalent to berkeley um dick grove is an amazing educator an amazing piano player was and, mi was mi out then the music institute no, that hadn't no, happened no, yet yeah. no yeah. And so when I started Dick Grove, he had this, he had the school in Studio City. It later moved to Van Nuys. And I think I spent two years in Studio City and, and two years in Van Nuys all the time. Wow. While I was going to UCLA, I was, I was, would basically come home and, you know, and go to Dick Grove and then come home and, you know, do music and study and all that. It was, it was a, it was a lot of work, but, um, so I had, by the time I was done with there, I could, you know, read and understood you know theory and harmony and and made sense of what i actually could play Mm -hmm. so um after this experience with the uso i decided well you know i i know what i'm doing i i certainly can write and i can read and and you know maybe i'll i'll try my hand at that and so i started uh even while i was working in television at night i built a little studio and um started writing songs and 
because of my television connections, um, I was able to give my demos to producers and, and directors, and I started getting jobs scoring TV shows. Um, and so I was doing that for a while, and I had a pretty decent resume, and I had a lot of stuff on the air, specifically commercials and um, uh, infomercials. And um, so anyway, I did that for a while while I was, you know, sort of getting my uh, foot in the door as a stage manager, as sort of stage manager slash composer. And then um, somewhere around 88 or 89, I got on a show called Kids Incorporated. And at the time, um, uh, Stacy Ferguson was on the show, who later became Fergie, and a young 10-year-old girl, Jennifer Love Hewitt, who later became um, I think she dropped the love and she's just Jennifer Hewitt. Um, and she got a, a record deal and she was a 10 year old girl. And her mother said to me, Hey, um, you know, I heard you're a songwriter. Do you have any songs that might work for my daughter? So I ended up writing some stuff for her. It got recorded. It was released in Japan. It went to number one. Um, so I felt like I still had a toehold in music. I wasn't performing anymore, but I was still <clears throat> writing and, and producing and doing all that. And I, I probably did that all the way through about 99, um, all the while still, you know, pursuing my other career in television and having, a, a, I guess, what most musicians would scoff at, which would be, you know, a, a backup plan. Um, well, wait, let's just stop there for a second. Sure. Um, let's just uh, bring a little bit of light as to what it, you were accomplishing. So you say you were writing jingles um, and commercials, any that I might have seen while I was watching television uh, that um, you can remember? I had for a, cu a couple of years this crazy show called The Psychic Friends Network. I've and heard of that. <laughs> it, and it was on, you know, a, a bunch of different uh, cable state, cable outlets. And um, I think it was Linda Georgian and Dionne Warwick uh, would, you know, meet in the, what looked like a talk show setting. And they, they'd have these crazy people on that would say they were psychics. And then people would call in and, you know. Right. Um, and then they would have these reenactments. And so the reenactments would have to be scored and the entrance music and the opening theme music and the closing credits music. And so there was a lot of music. It was, they were hour long shows and, um, you had to come up with all that, huh? Yeah. And so I, I was something like 32 minutes of music. Some were just beds and some were themes and some were, you know, stings and things like that. What about the, um, tracks at, uh, Nash, uh, Graham Nash show that you were doing? That was like in 1990, I think. Yeah. Uh, um, I did that show. It was called Inside. It was called The Ring, and then they changed the title to Inside Track with Graham Nash. Um, I had nothing to do with the music of that show. I was just the stage manager. But I'm, but I'm from from a standpoint where you're actually uh, around very famous uh, musicians coming. Uh, oh, in, it was, that, that that was awesome. M much of my career in television has been um working on music-based projects right you know like grammys american music awards tons of music specials um and you know i i, I you have, have a knack I, for it because you're a musician 
Yeah, I, and and now um, I'm more an associate director, and um, I, be, I, I I get mostly music based shows because I can read and I can count and I can I understand orchestrations. I've done a, a lot of operas and symphonies where I've actually you know had the conductor score and had to put the camera shots on the conductor score but because i can read it and understand what they're doing right um i have an asset that you know other other people in my field don't have sure you're you're an asset to the music industry as far as uh pr and as far as ex- well, as far I as creating right television based mu- music industry. yeah creating yeah. a show yeah, you have you have the uh, you have amalgamated all those different mediums, so you can. That's why you're the director. That's why you have an oversight over everything because you're. Well, you know, it's funny. I thought I went to went to Dick Rowe for four years, and you know, took guitar lessons from from you and from Ted Green and from Randy Rhodes and from all these different people, and then I ended up in television. I thought, well, there was years and years and years and years of music training you know, that gone to waste. And then when I started doing, doing operas and, and symphonies, it's like, well, I guess, uh, you know, all those lessons finally paid for themselves. Good on you, man. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's a fascinating, uh, evolution that you've gone through. So, um, so you're, you're, it's a late nineties. It's a, it's 2000. You're doing, you're producing big television shows. You're, you're earning a living. Basically, yeah, and, and uh, a handsome one at that. And then uh, one day, I came. I walked into my house, and and uh, my house was vacant, and my my six year old kid was gone, and everything I owned was gone. And I walked into my house, and and it looked like the day before we moved in. And uh, from that moment on, my my life changed, and it was yeah. more about surviving and figuring out how to pay for two households and lawyers and, you know, all of that stuff. And, and unfortunately the music uh, sort of had to go by the wayside because I couldn't continue working in, in a business where I would get paid quarterly, which was, you know, I would get BMI checks every quarter. Right. I needed at this point to get, you know, to go to regular work income. Yeah. yeah. So I stopped doing music and I sold all of my studio gear and I concentrated on just being an associate director, stage manager, unit production manager, first AD, you know, all those things in the, the categories in the director's guild where I knew that I could go to work and, you know, at the end of the day or at the end of the week, somebody would hand me a check. Right. And so uh that was 99 and that's um you're still doing that though right pretty much been my life yeah yeah so so sorry i want to excuse me i I was gonna say eventually we should probably get to the guitar and amp collecting well that's what i was gonna say that's where we should segue now uh because uh that's the fascinating thing about it you have this incredible um love for uh you know, instruments and amplifiers and and isn't a thing about, you know, uh, possessing these things to play. It's almost like preserving, uh, art, you know, works of art. That's exactly right. Yeah, and, and uh, let's start with the Marshall Amps because I know you have an incredible, probably the world's uh, most, I would say, 
organized and complete collection of Marshall amplifiers in a historic sense. Cause it's, it's pretty all, close. Yeah, you've, but, you've got it all pretty much uh, documented, you know. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit? Well, um, the very first rock concert that I saw um, was in 1974. I guess I was in the 10th grade, and um, I had heard on the radio or somebody played for me um, this guy robin trower and i i was a hendrix fan because my sister liked him so my sister had the records and i used to listen to the hendrix records and um unfortunately he passed away before i you know was able to go see concerts and then when i heard robin trower to my then untrained ear it sounded you know similar to me and at this point i was 14 i think or maybe 15 and not yet driving but i had a friend who was a little older and um, coerced him into taking me down to the Long Beach Arena to see Robin Trower. And, and he was uh, big. We walked in and there was, you know, his uh, double stacks of Marshall amps and his, you know, white maple neck Fender Stratocaster. <laughs> and uh, I was hooked. And so I want to say by the end of that year, I had saved up enough um, babysitting money or whatever I was doing at 14 or 15 and um, went to a place in, in Hollywood. I think it was called Freedom Guitar. Mm -hmm. And he had a Marshall cabinet. I mean, I had no idea what I was doing. It just said Marshall on it. So I thought, well, this is cool. And a Marshall amplifier, which I had no idea what I was buying. Um, the cabinet turned out to be a late sixties metal handle cabinet that it had the grill changed. I don't remember if the speakers were original or not. And the head was an early seventies, 50 watt. And I, I, I want to say I paid $200 for each piece back then. Mm -hmm. And so that was my first Marshall half stack. And um, then of course I, I had to be, you know, I had to look like Robin Trower. So I still had to buy, you know, three more cabinets and another head. And so I would just say like in the 12th grade, I just saved up, you know, um, sure. I think by then I had started, my first job was parking cars for Chuck's parking and I was paid $2 an hour, no tips. And I would take that money. And when I got two or $300, I would look in the recycler and you could buy Marshall's for 200, $250 back then, mm -hmm. you know, three hundred dollars if it was a hundred watt head and i just started buying them with no concept of what i was buying other than you know they said marshall on it stockpiling yeah and, and so i started out with two amplifiers and four cabinets and um i had that for a while and i think when i started playing in bands in on the sunset strip you know circuit the you know hard rock circuit I, I know what it was i um i started taking guitar lessons from randy rhodes in 78 79 and i went to go see my first you know band in a club an unsigned band at the starwood and the band that opened for them was called snow and they had a guitar player named carlos cavazzo and he had six Marshall cabinets and three heads. And I thought, oh my God, this is so cool. 
And so, and so then I want to be like that. So I ended up, you know, going to buy two more. And by the time I started performing, which would have been, you know, a year later with my band, um, it was when, you know, hard rock and heavy metal and that whole Sunset Strip glam, you know, Motley Crue, that whole thing started. And it was all about image and what you looked like and what your equipment looked like and how much, you know, makeup you wore and leather and spandex and, you know, all that shit. And so it was at a time where, you know, bigger was better and louder was better and the, and it was excess and more and more and more. So it just encouraged, you know, this insane desire to have a lot of marshals and six became eight and eight became 10. And then I had to have two roadies to, you know, drag my stuff around. And it was, it was stupid, but, um, sounds like a lot of fun, but that's what we did, you know, back, back then. You did say Randy Rhodes. Uh, now he's, he's an icon, right? So, uh, you, you're able to get guitar lessons with a guy that had a short, uh, lifespan. Um, yeah, he, he, um, I was listening to when I was going to UCLA, I was listening to uh, a, a station uh, in LA called KROQ and they would have these, um, or maybe it was KMET, they would have these unsigned band, you know, like Sunday night from 10 to midnight or something like that. You could mm-hmm. hear, you know, unsigned, ta- you know, talent. And I remember hearing this band called Quiet Riot and this song called Slick Black Cadillac. And I thought the guitar sounded really cool. So um, I was driving then. I had my first car. And I thought, well, I want to go see these guys. So I looked in the local paper and they were playing at this Starwood Club, which was still, you know, active back then. And um, I, I want to say it was 77, maybe first year at UCLA, maybe 78. And I, and I went to see these guys and I saw Randy Rowe. I saw the band before them snow and then i saw randy Rhodes, and there was a little flyer on the table um that said join the quiet riot fan club and i thought it was the band was cool so i filled up a little card and i sent it in and i got a eight by ten and a little flyer sent to me and some other stuff and on the back of the flyer it said you know uh randy Rhodes guitar lessons eight dollars an hour with a address and a phone number and it was his mother's music studio in burbank and I thought he played real, you know, great. And, and, uh, I don't think I was, I wasn't taking from you yet. I, I think this is before you. And then, so I called the school and signed up for a lesson and, um, he walked in the room and, and off we went. And I, I taped every one of them on my little radio shack cassette player. And, and I remember I some of the lessons. sheets, you showed me some of the sheets too, that he, he wrote out. Yeah, he wrote backwards and upside down, which is crazy. Um, I guess he was dyslexic, or that's the way he saw it. But when I, I look at them now and I see the patterns he would write down, they make sense if you look in a mirror. But when you look at them, they're complete. They're they're totally backwards. But anyway, um, <laughs> so I took from him for two years, and um, he was an amazing guy. So it would it'd be seventy eight and. 79 to late 77 78 into early 79 anyway it was before he took you, off for England. you could write your own book about him two years of I, taking I, lessons with a teacher that's like you become best friends you well know? i actually have written a book about him um actually two 
there uh, on Amazon. One is his biography. Um, I'm credited as the um, publisher and, and editor, um, but I actually wrote it. I didn't take a writer's credit because I, I thought um, there was some material in there that you know might be problematic. Um, and then there's another book. Uh, what are the called- names of these books? Are they available? Yeah, they're out of print. Um, there, you can find them on. I saw them on Amazon. One was Randy Rhodes' "A Quiet Riot Years," and one is Randy Rhodes' "Story." They're they're coffee table books. Um, we printed, I want to say, twenty five hundred of each one. Uh, one, the biography was just hardbound, and the "Quiet Riot" book was originally hardbound and then came out in paperback. Um, and so, yeah, wow. it's, 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 it's his sort of life story and, um, you know, a little bit about my connection with him, but, you know, it was going back and tracing his life story and figuring out, you know, how he died and what happened and what the, you know, surroundings of that were, and then what's, you know, become of his legacy. And, um, and then, uh, after the books, there was a, movie that I produced called um, Randy Rhodes, A Quiet Riot Years. Uh, initially, I, I had tried to do something about his life, but um, it was riddled with problems. And so um, tragic. I had, the movie ended up being just about his time in L.A. before he became successful. Um, so anyway, they're, they're all out there. It, 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 it ticked off something on the bucket list and the, the two books are out there, the movies out there. Um, and you know, it's sort of got a, an, an, an afterlife, you know, the, the books now are far more expensive than they ever were when they initially came out, which oftentimes will happen with things that are in limited production. Yeah, they're collectible. Yeah. Yeah. So you compile or compiled stockpiled, um, a complete collection of marshals from like the 60s all the way up until into yeah. the 2000s. You're listening to a Believe podcast. I'm your host, John Heusenstamm, and this is The Guitar Life. If you're enjoying our show, please subscribe. And to continue listening, go to the website, Peter Margolis Part 2. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.